0: Good morning. You can open up your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 46. Today we're going to be taking a a break, a one-week break from our study, through the Gospel of John, and take up a cherished, beautiful, powerful psalm for Christ's church, Psalm 46. This is just a wonderful wonderful psalm about the blessing of the nearness of God towards his people, how his goodness or how his nearness is our goodness. So even in the worst of times and even the end of times, God is good to his people. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. It's been pointed out often over the years that Psalm 46 is the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther's favorite psalm. Just saying something, given Luther taught all the psalms consecutively as his time as a a monk in the Church of Rome. As we know from from church history, Luther faced many dark times as he sought to to reform the church and turn in their ways and align their teachings and practices with the Bible. He faced fierce persecution and lived a life of a fugitive for many years as he he sought again to, to reform the church in Rome. It's been written of him, he faced many seasons of deep discouragement and what I think we would consider as just depression. And it was this psalm. Psalm 46, that gave him a unique solace in his trials, a light in the darkness. In fact, his most famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is primarily based on this passage here, Psalm 46. And it's not just Luther who finds unique and powerful comfort in this psalm. This psalm has been a balm for God's people throughout every age as it proclaims the, the nearness of God and the, the many benefits that nearness brings to his people, even in the darkest of times. So many saints throughout the ages turn to Psalm 46 in times of distress and in times of turmoil and in times of plenty in times of blessing. Because in this psalm, God's people get reminded of the immense blessing found under the wings of the Almighty. Now before we dive into the text, I just want to give a brief context of Psalm 46. We, we, we see in the superscription of the psalm, if you look down there, that it is a psalm of the sons of Korah. And no one quite knows the, the exact setting of this psalm or when it was written or even when, on what occasion, the Israelites would, would sing it. Um, but there's quite a bit of speculation. I think it's, it does seem fairly clear that it probably was written and sung during or after a battle or, or an enemy invasion from a warring nation that the Israelites faced many of. And there's also uh, a few things about this psalm that make it somewhat difficult for us to interpret. The first being it, it doesn't fit neatly into a specific genre of psalm. So as we examine the psalter at large, we can see there there, there are psalms of praise, psalms of lament, psalms of comfort, uh, imprecatory psalms of of singing judgment on God's enemies. In Psalm 46, we we have a diversity of elements and even some, some prophetic elements of things to come contained in the psalm. So as we'll see as we walk through this text, the psalmist will speak of things in the future or of the the way distant future of the end of times, but it will also weave in present tense exhortation and imperative statements to God's people in the present age. All this to me just makes Psalm 46 just very interesting and I think a very intriguing psalm for us to study. Now one thing that is very helpful for us in understanding the psalm is that the structure of the psalm is clear. There, you can look down. There, there are three stanzas that are divided with the word marker Selah at the end of verse 3, 7, and 11. And these are the three stanzas um, develop or, or proclaim the one overarching theme in the psalm. And that is that the presence and nearness of God is a, a bastion of comfort and help for his people. God's nearness is our help. And that's really the main idea of the psalm. Notice in verse 1, it says, God is our refuge and strength. Emphasis on the R. He's the, the covenant God of his people. Verses 7 and 11 are, are a repeated refrain that, that in the, the second and third stanzas of the poem. Right, We read, the, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So again, notice the, just the emphasis on God's presence, the Lord of hosts who's with who? He's with us. It's a very personal language of, a, of a, the personal presence of the Lord, of Yahweh, with His people. You could say it's a covenant fellowship that the Lord has. And that's the theme that is summarized well in the first verse of God being a refuge for his people. And that's how we're going to structure our time in the psalm with, the, with three main points from these three stanzas of the psalm. So if you're taking notes, the, the three main points are going to be one, God is our refuge in calamity. God is our refuge in calamity. Two, God is our refuge in his city. God is our refuge in His city. And third, God is our refuge at His coming. So God is our refuge in calamity. He is our refuge in His city. And He is our refuge at His coming. So first, let's see how God is our refuge in calamity by looking at verses 1 through 3 again. So we read in verse 1, this, this most precious verse, I think, of the, of the whole psalm for, for the church throughout the ages, that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Notice we see two words to describe what God is to his people. God is refuge, our refuge, and strength. I think these largely these two terms are, are overlapping in meaning and really connect with the idea that we see in verses 7 and 11 of God being our fortress. All of these terms are really talking about the same thing with with some small difference and nuance and meaning. And the point is, Israel's strength and help comes from God who is the source of that strength and help. The idea of refuge brings to mind the idea of shelter. Shelter, particularly during during a storm. Maybe you've seen videos like like I have of these videos of bomb shelters in the Ukraine during this, this war. This is the, the idea of this word refuge. It's, it's a shelter, meaning God is the one who, who provides, from, provides protection from the troubles and difficulties in this life. And this works out in, in different ways in our lives. But one way God shelters us from the, from the trials of this wor- world is sometimes, in fact, I would argue oftentimes, is He does not allow us to go through all the suffering, all the trials that we could go through, or what what we actually deserve. He often protects us from experiencing earthly pain and and earthly suffering, in His abundant kindness towards us. And in that way, He's acting as our refuge, as our shelter, as one guarding us and protecting us by protecting us against the evil of this world. The word strength there uh, has a slightly different connotation. It it, it typically is used in in reference to God's enablement or or the power he gives to the righteous, to righteous individuals, typically in their weakness and frailty. So with strength comes with it the idea of endurance or perseverance. Perseverance. Through, through the various trials of life. So put together, we see that what the Israelites are confessing here in verse 1 of this psalm is that God is their shelter, God is their refuge, who provides protection from life's difficulties, and He provides us with the strength and power to persevere when we do face those difficulties, those tumultuous times. The psalmist also says, God is a a very present help in trouble. It's a very present help in trouble. It's a somewhat interesting phrase to translate. You could also read it as, God is a well-proven help in trouble. I think that gets maybe at the idea better. It's a phrase talking about God's faithful track record to His people in the past. God is well-proven, and therefore He's a present help in our troubles. He's been faithful in the past. And this leads to a command, or, or an exhortation that we see in verse two. It reads, "Therefore, so so in light of verse one, in light of what we just read, in light of God being our shelter and providing us with strength, and being our help for trouble in the past, therefore, what? We will not fear. We will not fear." And then what the psalmist does is very interesting. He he writes of an image of the earth literally giving way. And the mountains being moved into the sea, and, and the mountains trembling at the raging sea. It's just very powerful imagery of what appears creation going through upheaval, or you could even say creation going through utter destruction. It's a chaotic picture. And I think what is happening here is that the psalmist is imagining the type of destruction and purification of, of creation that will, occur, that, will, that will occur at the end of times at the day of the Lord's return. The imagery seen here can be described as, as a decreation of the world. The earth is fundamentally changed at its most basic landform structures, so mountains fall off their their structure, they fall off their, their foundation into the oceans. So we need to ask, what is the psalmist doing with this imagery? Why is he saying this? I think as we see in the, as we'll see in the rest of the psalm, the psalmist did, the psalmist clearly has an eye toward the coming day of the Lord, when, when God will make everything right in his creation and purge all evil from. His creation. And we know that the creation itself will be subject to this destructive day of the Lord. There will be massive worldwide calamity. But the psalmist here seems to be using that imagery of the the future day rhetorically as, as as a literary device to say something like this We shall not fear as God's people. Even when the worst of all calamities strike. Even when the worst of all earthly calamities strike. Why? Because He is our refuge. He has been our strength. He has been our help. And we know in this age, as we just read in Romans 8, that the created order or creation itself has been, has been groaning together in the, in the pains of childbirth. Meaning we, we, we experience natural disaster. We experience disease. We experience death in this age. As we await the coming day of the Lord. And here is where these verses get so practical and helpful for us. Because in Christ, we can confess God to be our refuge and strength, in the worst of calamities, and the worst of disasters, and the worst of sufferings. And there are times, to take the psalmist metaphor, metaphorically speaking, in our lives, there are times when it feels like the mountains are giving way into the heart of the sea in our lives. Or you could say that the foundation is just stripped from beneath us when you're at the doctor's office and get the cancer diagnosis and the bleak prognosis. When your house is completely destroyed in, in, a, in a natural disaster and you, and you lose those possessions you've worked so long and hard for. When you expect to hear the unborn baby's heartbeat on the sonogram to hear silence. All these moments in our lives It's as if our whole world gets turned upside down at these moments. And what is the call of this psalm for his people? We will not fear. We will not give in to despair. We will not give in to anxiety. Because even in the worst moments in our lives, when we experience the devastating effects of sin... We experience the effects of sin on the creation and and in the created order that we exist in. Even in those moments, we know God is our refuge. And God will provide strength to us. He will provide His strength to us to to carry on and endure, to persevere. He is our help, our very present help, our well-proven help in these times of trouble. And along with the psalmist we can and must remember God's past faithfulness just not not in our own lives, although that's a great testimony, but also in the lives of his people, how He has delivered his people time after time after time in the pages of scripture where you, in, in, in the, the history of his church, God is faithful. So God is near to us in the time of trouble and there really is no greater promise for us and comfort than this in the Christian life in verse 4 you notice we we see the psalmist shift the scene in the second stanza to a a particular location that, that expounds on the blessing of God's presence in the present or in his people's lives which leads to our second point God is our refuge in his city God is our refuge in his city So read with me verses 4 and 5. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So what we see here is is a picture of the city of God. This is the referring... Most likely to the, to the physical location of Jerusalem, uh, where the temple of God was resided and is commonly referred to in the Psalter as Zion, the, the holy mountain of the Lord. It's this city that the psalmist describes as having a river running through it, which makes the, the city of God. So, when you hear city of God, think of the, the, the inhabitants of the city glad. This river produces joy. In its inhabitants. So, what is the river? If you know your geography at all, you may know there's no river that goes through the city of Jerusalem, kind of like Amarillo. I don't know how it exists, but. So, what is the psalmist referring to? Well, there's some debate here among scholars, but I think given the context of the psalm and the, the themes of the day of the Lord that we see, Given that context, I think we conclude this. this reference to a river is the river we see described in the New Jersey. It's a shelter, meaning God is the one who, who provides, from, provides protection from the troubles and difficulties in this life. And this works out in, in different ways in our lives. But one way, God shelters us from the, from the trials of this wor- world is sometimes, in fact, I would argue oftentimes, is He does not allow us to go through all the suffering, all the trials that we could go through, or what what we actually deserve. He often protects us from experiencing earthly pain and and earthly suffering, in His abundant kindness towards us. And in that way, He's acting as our refuge, as our shelter, as one guarding us and protecting us by protecting us against the evil of this world. The word strength there uh, has a slightly different connotation. It it, it typically is used in in reference to God's enablement or or the power he gives to the righteous, to righteous individuals, typically in their weakness and frailty. So with strength comes with it the idea of endurance or perseverance. Perseverance. Through, through the various trials of life. So put together, we see that what the Israelites are confessing here in verse 1 of this psalm is that God is their shelter, God is their refuge, who provides protection from life's difficulties, and He provides us with the strength and power to persevere when we do face those difficulties, those tumultuous times. The psalmist also says, God is a a very present help in trouble. It's a very present help in trouble. It's a somewhat interesting phrase to translate. You could also read it as, God is a well-proven help in trouble. I think that gets maybe at the idea better. It's a phrase talking about God's faithful track record to His people in the past. God is well-proven, and therefore He's a present help in our troubles. He's been faithful in the past. And this leads to a command, or, or an exhortation that we see in verse two. It reads, "Therefore, so so in light of verse one, in light of what we just read, in light of God being our shelter and providing us with strength, and being our help for trouble in the past, therefore, what? We will not fear. We will not fear." And then what the psalmist does is very interesting. He he writes of an image of the earth literally giving way. And the mountains being moved into the sea, and, and the mountains trembling at the raging sea. It's just very powerful imagery of what appears creation going through upheaval, or you could even say creation going through utter destruction. It's a chaotic picture. And I think what is happening here is that the psalmist is imagining the type of destruction and purification of, of creation that will, occur, that, will, that will occur at the end of times at the day of the Lord's return. The imagery seen here can be described as, as a decreation of the world. The earth is fundamentally changed at its most basic landform structures, so mountains fall off their their structure, they fall off their, their foundation into the oceans. So we need to ask, what is the psalmist doing with this imagery? Why is he saying this? I think as we see in the, as we'll see in the rest of the psalm, the psalmist did, the psalmist clearly has an eye toward the coming day of the Lord, when, when God will make everything right in his creation and purge all evil from. His creation. And we know that the creation itself will be subject to this destructive day of the Lord. There will be massive worldwide calamity. But the psalmist here seems to be using that imagery of the the future day rhetorically as, as as a literary device to say something like this We shall not fear as God's people. Even when the worst of all calamities strike. Even when the worst of all earthly calamities strike. Why? Because He is our refuge. He has been our strength. He has been our help. And we know in this age, as we just read in Romans 8, that the created order or creation itself has been, has been groaning together in the, in the pains of childbirth. Meaning, we we, we experience natural disaster. We experience disease. We experience death in this age as we await the coming day of the Lord. And here is where these verses get so practical and helpful for us. Because in Christ, we can confess God to be our refuge and strength, in the worst of calamities, and the worst of disasters, and the worst of sufferings. And there are times, to take the psalmist metaphor, metaphorically speaking, in our lives, there are times when it feels like the mountains are giving way into the heart of the sea in our lives. Or you could say that the foundation is just stripped from beneath us when you're at the doctor's office and get the cancer diagnosis and the bleak prognosis. When your house is completely destroyed in, in, a, in a natural disaster and you, and you lose those possessions you've worked so long and hard for. When you expect to hear the unborn baby's heartbeat on the sonogram to hear silence. All these moments in our lives It's as if our whole world gets turned upside down at these moments. And what is the call of this psalm for his people? We will not fear. We will not give in to despair. We will not give in to anxiety. Because even in the worst moments in our lives, when we experience the devastating effects of sin... We experience the effects of sin on the creation and and in the created order that we exist in. Even in those moments, we know God is our refuge. And God will provide strength to us. He will provide His strength to us to to carry on and endure, to persevere. He is our help, our very present help, our well-proven help in these times of trouble. And along with the psalmist we can and must remember God's past faithfulness just not not in our own lives, although that's a great testimony, but also in the lives of his people, how He has delivered his people time after time after time in the pages of scripture where you, in, in, in the, the history of his church, God is faithful. So God is near to us in the time of trouble and there really is no greater promise for us and comfort than this in the Christian life in verse 4 you notice we we see the psalmist shift the scene in the second stanza to a a particular location that, that expounds on the blessing of God's presence in the present or in his people's lives which leads to our second point God is our refuge in his city God is our refuge in his city So read with me verses 4 and 5. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So what we see here is is a picture of the city of God. This is the referring... Most likely to the, to the physical location of Jerusalem, uh, where the temple of God was resided and is commonly referred to in the Psalter as Zion, the, the holy mountain of the Lord. It's this city that the psalmist describes as having a river running through it, which makes the, the city of God. So, when you hear city of God, think of the, the, the inhabitants of the city glad. This river produces joy. In its inhabitants. So, what is the river? If you know your geography at all, you may know there's no river that goes through the city of Jerusalem, kind of like Amarillo. I don't know how it exists, but. So, what is the psalmist referring to? Well, there's some debate here among scholars, but I think given the context of the psalm and the, the themes of the day of the Lord that we see, Given that context, I think we conclude this this reference to a river is the river we see described in the New Jerusalem. Much like the river we see in in the Garden of Eden, or what that river is patterned after. A river that produces abundant life. We see descriptions of this river flowing out of the temple in God's presence uh, in in a place like Ezekiel 47, verses 1-14. through I think that's kind of the same idea the psalmist is is using here in verse 4. In both sides in in Ezekiel, both sides of this river, there are lush trees and and vegetation that, again, reminiscent of the garden, of of abundant life and flourishing. Return with me to, to Revelation 22. Read with me the first couple of verses here. This is talking about a a description of the new Jerusalem, God's uh, inaugurated, inaugurated kingdom. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month that leaves of the tree. The leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. So this is the river that, that brings blessing and, and sustenance to God's people in the new Jerusalem, which is, which is patterned after the, the original paradise in the garden. It's a river of life. And this is the river that I think is in view here in, in verse 4 which is key to our understanding of the psalm. And this life-giving river brings delight to God's people. So the psalmist here in this section of the psalm is again looking looking ahead to a future day, to to the end of times when God will make things new. God will establish his kingdom fully, the new Jerusalem, the, the new earth. And in this city, in this new Jerusalem, God is in the midst of her. Like the presence in the Old Testament temple in Jerusalem is, is always been pointing to a full dwelling of God with His people. God's very presence, His, his dwelling place, will be His city. Now this is important. The, the psalmist is applying this future truth or reality of the, of the new Jerusalem to His present context. And that the, the temple in Jerusalem was God's dwelling place. Israel was God's chosen nation whom he he fought for and was in covenant fellowship with. And by pointing towards the the future New Jerusalem, the psalmist is saying God's people can find comfort there. That's the big idea. God's people must find comfort there. We can find solace there. Why? Verse 5. God is in the midst of her. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So Just think about this. The city of God will not move. Think of this in contrast to the picture the psalmist painted in verses 2 and 3. What did we see there? We saw the mountains, the symbol in the ancient world of unmoved stability, of a sure foundation, the mountains. We see the mountains move. And unlike the mountains, the city of God, God's dwelling place will not move. It's a firm foundation. It's a solid rock on which his people stand. And I think we can see the reason the city will not move is because God is in the midst of her. God's presence brings a stabilizing factor to his people that can't be matched by anything in his creation. So even if we think of the calamity of the first verses of the psalm, or or in verse 6, the nations raging against God, and and the kingdoms of this world rising and falling and and tottering. Again, the the idea on, on movement, on change. Even amongst all that chaos in the creation, God doesn't change. God never changes. He he will not be moved. And by extension, His covenant people, who are citizens of this city, will not be moved. Really is a remarkable promise for us to trust in. We also see in verse 5 that God will will help her when morning dawns. It's a great phrase. The the idea of morning dawning Is common in the Old Testament that that characterizes the deliverance from enemies. Salvation, you could say. God will will help his people by delivering them from their enemies temporarily and once for all at the end of times by defeating death. Which we see how this happens in verse 6. God will not just sit passively back as the nations continue to, to rage against him, as kingdoms plot and, and their rebellion against their maker. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. The earth literally gives way. It's an astonishing statement of God's power. God created the world and the entire universe. Everything that exists is by the power of his word. And the psalmist declares he will undo everything. Melt his creation. Annihilate it. That's how you could translate that. By what? How is he going to do that? Not by a million angels, but by his voice. His word. As Luther said in the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, speaking of the devil, that great chief enemy of God and the ruler of this word, One little word shall fail him. The commentator Jim Hamilton put it like this. When the Lord rises to judge the earth, the same word that made the world will melt it. God's vows, consonants, syllables, phrases, and sentences cause things like protons and neutrons to form atoms, atoms to form molecules, and on the power of God's almighty utterance, the earth and the universe spring into being. The same utterance that caused them to congeal will cause them to dissolve. I think that's a picture that we have here in, in Psalm 46. God will, will bring an end to the nations raging against him and his anointed, as we see in Psalm 2. In his city our city in Christ, will not be moved. And the refrain of, in verse 7 is the, is the great comfort again to his people. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob, he is our fortress, meaning God is with us. His presence is near to his people. And therefore, we are safe. So though he will melt the earth with his voice, his people are safe because our fortress, our protection, our safety, our help is found in the Maker's presence, who is with us. Like literally, right now, with us. Because the, the, the promise is for us in Christ. We are the citizens of that city of God that they're talking, that the psalmist is talking about. And though his kingdom has not fully come and it's not fully consummated in this age, the church is an outpost, an an embassy of that coming kingdom. The church then is the the city of God, the, the kingdom of God, piercing through, you could say, in this age of darkness and sin and death. And do you remember the promise of our Lord at the end of the Great Commission, at the very end of the... The, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew eighteen or 28, 18-20, through 20, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, here it is, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with us. Jesus is with his bride, the church, until the end of the age, until he comes again. So God's presence through his son is, as the psalm says, with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Therefore, he is our fortress. He is our refuge. He is our help. He is our shelter today. And what we need to do with these verses, then, is to to trust in our king. God is our, our help. He, he has promised to be with us as we, as we gather in his name every week here at his, as his church, and, and we live in the age where the, the nations are still raging, kingdoms are still tottering as we speak, and yet we must look forward to the end of this age as the psalmist helps to lift our eyes to the future, Where where we will dwell in the city of God and be glad, be full of joy. That is our refuge as we as we wait for Him to come. The last point I want us to see is this, which is really what we've been seeing thus far throughout the Psalm. It's kind of summarizing. It's the third point. God is our refuge at His coming. God is our refuge at His coming. So what has been implicit, you could say, and the psalm becomes pretty explicit in verses 8 through 11. Read with me there. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted In the earth, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So the psalmist here shifts, as he has throughout, but but pretty explicitly here, to the end of times. Come behold, that phrase is really important. It's a a common phrase used in the prophetic literature of beholding or marveling at, at what the Lord is going to do. At, his, at the prophetic works. And this is exactly what we see here. The psalmist is giving a, an invitation of sorts to all peoples, right? The invitation is, come. Come and behold. Come, look at what God will do. Now, what makes this a little difficult is that he speaks in the present tense of these actions. But it seems clear that, that he's talking about future events. Future works, let me prove it to you if you're skeptical. So what works are we to behold? Well, the first work is honestly quite frightening. How he has brought desolations on the earth. Behold, how he has brought desolations on the earth. That word desolations can be translated as complete and utter destruction. Similar to the word melt, annihilation. And it's most likely referring to the destruction of evildoers or wicked humans who refuse to repent of their evil actions and live in rebellion to the king. The idea is no living thing will be left in the Lord's path. So fierce description of what will be the sure and certain annihilation of sin and its effects, and the annihilation of all those who stand opposed to the Lord in prideful rebellion. He will bring desolation. It's a sober warning for anyone here who's not presently trusting in Christ for salvation. Because make no mistake, the Scriptures are clear: without the Lord's forgiveness, He will bring unspeakable judgment on on you and your sin in the final day. But there is there is abundant grace waiting for you in Christ even today, if you if you trust in him and repent of your sins. The second work we're told to behold is that he he makes wars to cease. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. Simpler way of saying this is that he will bring world peace. Behold, our God is bringing will bring world peace. How? But well, what we see at the end of verse 9, he will break the bow He will shatter the spear and burn the chariots with fire. Just think what do all those bow, spear, and chariots have in common? They're they're, they're instruments of warfare that the Lord will bring to an end. He will end all war and, and kingdoms, proudly fighting against each other as they rage against the Lord in rebellion. The idea of these verses is pretty simple, actually. God will bring desolation upon the earth by, by purging it of the, of the wicked and bring world peace from, to the ends of the earth, peace to the ends of the earth through His judgment. In the light of the whole canon of Scripture, when do we know that will occur? When the Lord Jesus returns again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And in verse 10, the psalm gives us another positive command to to his original audience and to to us. So in in light of God's future judgment and making all things new by, by bringing peace through judgment, in light of that, we're told in verse 10 to be still. To be still and know that I am God. Now this phrase, I think, is... Sometimes been misunderstood. The, the psalmist is not calling us and the people of God throughout the age to, to be still in the sense of living a, a quiet contemplation. We have the idea of a, of a monk living in isolation. Be still and just contemplate and think about God all day. Be still here brings with it the idea of laying down one's arms or, or surrendering. You could translate this phrase as, as quit striving and know that I'm God. The idea is God is going to handle his people's enemies. He is going to, to help his people. He is their refuge, He is our strength, He is our fortress, and He will judge those who stand opposed to Him and His people. So lay down your arms, be still, and trust me, is the call course, this would have huge relevance to, to the nation of Israel, who, as we see chronicled in Scripture, faced the, the perennial temptation of, of making pragmatic alliances with pagan nations, right, that, that God forbade them to do. But the reason they did that, right, the, the reason they were tempted to that, because they, the sole purpose of the nation of Israel's benefit and safety They were tempted to to compromise God's commands to them to make these alliances for their safety as as warring nations warred against them. It's a wicked compromise because it's against God's law. So the call of the nation of Israel at this time would be Be still and trust God to defend you, to defend you from the, the many enemies that are pressing in against you. That takes an incredible amount of faith in the Lord. And notice how verse 10 ends. God says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I think this is how we are to be still and know that he is God. By knowing and by confessing that he will be exalted among the earth. He does reign over every creature. He does reign over every square inch of his creation, and he will one day make that reign abundantly evident to all people as every knee will bow to him. He will be exalted. So we Christians do not need to fear, as verse 2 says, and yet we're so prone to fear and to anxiety and to Pragmatic methods of engaging the world that we know compromise what the Lord demands for our life. We're so prone to these things that we need to be reminded of this often. Be still, Christian. Quit striving to do what only God can do. And brothers and sisters, that is how the Lord is our refuge. He will win in the end. He will make everything that is wrong right. He's the unchanging creator of all, who will not shake. He he will not totter. He will not move, even in the chaos. And those who by faith, those who by faith are, are in covenant fellowship with Him, which is just a fancy way of saying Christians. Christians, we do not need to fear because our God reigns. He is exalted as we speak, and we can trust Him. He does not change. He does not move. And his promises will never fail. So brothers and sisters, do you believe that? When we face the darkest calamities of this age, when we experience the turmoil of living with nations raging and, and kingdoms rising and falling, do we trust him enough to be still and to know that he is God? Do we believe that he will be and is exalted among all nations of the earth? And he will establish his heavenly city where, where all of us and Christ will dwell for eternity. That city whose streams of from the river of life will make us glad, will, will have infinite joy for all eternity. Do we believe that? Because I think when we truly get that, which it's a process as we work to, to relinquish our control and trust of this age, it's a process. But when we get that, we can resonate so much more with the final words of Martin Luther's hymn of this psalm. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Why? Why? His kingdom is forever. So, brothers and sisters, a mighty fortress is our God and He is our refuge and strength. Let's pray. Oh Father, You are mighty, all-powerful, and yet You choose to Dwell with your people and give us shelter, shelter beneath your wings, a fortress amidst the chaos. We're so thankful for that, Lord. We pray, I pray for any in in trials right now that you would comfort their soul in, in a particular way, minister to them. Be their strength, be their shield, be their help even today. And Lord, I pray for us that, that aren't, that you, would, that you would prepare us for the calamities that will come from living in this sinful age. That we would take steps to, to, to trust you as our shelter and our refuge, to trust you as our help and not seek to run to other things, that we would be still, that we would quit striving, that we would rest in your grace.